Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We were lucky this year. Unlike many recent years, the weather never set the conditions for a major deadly fire sparked by PG&E's electrical equipment. Were it not for that good fortune, we would have spent many hours on this show talking together about what needs to happen with PG&E's infrastructure and what the company's future holds. But just because we didn't experience a major conflagration doesn't make those PG&E issues any less urgent, relevant, or difficult. Now's the time to take stock outside of an acute crisis moment. So today we're going to talk about the future of this large investor-owned utility, which emerged from bankruptcy with new leadership and old problems. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the best of times, a modern electric utility faces a challenging environment. The electrical grid is aging all those wires, all those poles. Global warming is making extreme weather more likely, damaging equipment and setting the stage for wildfires. And at the same time, we have to shift away from fossil fuels. Renewable power sources tend to make life a bit trickier for utilities, especially the kind of rooftop solar that many Californians have installed. But PG&E has not had the best of times. The company's equipment caused the 2018 campfire, which was the deadliest wildfire in California history. PG&E equipment also sparked the Dixie Fire, the second largest fire in California history, which burned nearly a million acres of the state. And there's been others, too, of course. All these problems led the company into complex settlements, criminal investigation, and into filing for bankruptcy. On the one hand, it's hard to see how things get much better. And on the other... PG&E basically has a monopoly on the energy supply of one of the richest places on Earth. So, to discuss our fraught relationship with PG&E, we're joined by Michael Wara, Policy Director for the Sustainability Accelerator Accelerator at Door School of Sustainability and Director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Also joined by Dave Roberts, author and host of Volts, its newsletter and podcast about clean energy and politics. And he reported on energy and climate for Grist and Vox for years and years before striking out on his own. Welcome, Dave. Nice to talk to you. Hey, glad to be here. And we've got Lily Jamali returning to uh, KQD's Airwaves. She's now a senior reporter at Marketplace and, of course, uh, was previously one of the hosts of the California Report. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. Hey, Alexis. I just want to say to PG&E CEO Patricia Pop declined our invitation to join the show today. Uh, Lily, you've got a panel uh, coming up this week at a conference about PG&E's ongoing challenges. When you were sort of doing your prep, lining things up, getting ready to talk about this, what really stood out to you uh, about what's been happening with PG&E over the last couple of years? 
Yeah, well, so this is a mini conference, and I'll be hosting one of two panels on uh, PG&E, past, present, and future. And what we're trying to do is really take a look back at how we got here, but really with an eye on, you know, what comes next? Where do we go from here? And, you know, I think um, the company has two major tasks that it's been working on. Task one is safety. That's obviously the one that most of us care the most about. Um, and task two is shoring up its financial situation. And those two tasks are deeply interconnected, right? On safety, um, you know, the the job is to not be the company whose equipment is involved in sparking these massive fires year in and year out. And that involves hardening their system, clearing vegetation, inspections. It involves piloting new projects. And that costs money, which is where task two comes in, you know, trying to do this while you have uh, the company still in a pretty delicate financial situation. When they went into bankruptcy in 2019, they were already carrying a lot of debt. And, um, you know, there was a a lot of there were a lot of Wall Street interests in the driver's seat during that bankruptcy. So they actually ended up with more debt than they started with, which isn't normally how Chapter 11 works. But it's just one of the many ways where this run through Chapter 11 broke with norms. Um, And I think, you know, they're trying to deal with this debt issue. They're trying to attract new investors, which is a challenge when you're a utility that doesn't pay a dividend. Um, which I think is reestablishing that dividend is a priority for the company, too. But, you know, optics of something like that are very tricky when we all remember the big criticism of PG&E these last few years has been that they were spending for many years money on dividends, money on things like executive bonuses at the expense of safety. And their share prices uh, are up from the lows, like quite substantially, uh, even in the last year, up like 50 percent, yeah. Yeah, it's trading at, I think, around $14.50. But that's a very recent development just in the last few weeks. And, you know, presumably um, it's because we are, from what we can tell, it certainly feels like we're on the back end of, you know, the worst of the fire risk for this season Mm -hmm. anyway. And I think shareholders are responding to that. Dave Roberts, uh, help us understand some history. I mean, you've done these deep dives into sort of how did we get this sort of distinct system of investor-owned utilities? These are sort of, they're necessary for a public, but they're not public. How did we get this? Yeah, they were, I mean, they were sort of a solution to a problem that faced the U.S. at the beginning of the 20th century, which is sort of how to electrify the country, you know, before we had uh, all this um, electrical infrastructure that reached almost every U.S. citizen. The question was how to build it, and, and uh, they didn't want to. They didn't want to do it with public money. Basically, it would have been an enormous uh, investment of public money. So the idea was, how can we get private investors to pay for this? Basically, to pay for the build out, and so that's sort of where the whole idea of an investor-owned utility came in, which is. Um, you know that they're a monopoly, so they don't they can't make profits selling power, right? We don't want to we don't want to let a monopoly set its own prices, so they can just recover costs through selling power. So where they make money is they invest in new infrastructure, and then they receive a guaranteed rate of return on those investments, which is a great setup if you want to build, 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 right? Mm-hmm. But now we're sort of you know, at the beginning of the 21st century, that's the century we're in, right? <laughs> now, now we've got the infrastructure and we don't need to build, 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 build anymore. We need to maintain, maintain, maintain. And and um, investor-owned utilities do not get uh, a guaranteed rate of return on maintenance spending. 
<clears throat> so you can see the basic incentive structure facing not just PG&E, but all investor-owned utilities, which is they want to build more stuff because that's how they make money. But maintenance is at best uh, a sort of annoyance, right? It's just a money sink. They don't get any profit back from it, from uh, maintenance. So you can see this through PG&E's history again and again and again, no matter what the sort of, you know, no matter what they say publicly, no matter what the sort of earnest executives may believe over time, that incentive structure just eats its way back, you know, and, and maintenance spending declines and you get what uh, PG&E has, which is an enormous, elaborate um, network of power lines, some of which are almost a century old that are literally just falling apart. And now the sort of maintenance bill has built up and built up and built up and built up. And this is what the hot potato is. This is what all the bankruptcy and all the angst is about, is there's this enormous built up backlog of maintenance um, <laughs> costs that need to be spent. But investor-owned utilities just have no real incentive to do that spending unless they are sort of browbeat by politicians, which is what's right. happening. It's basically a kind of form of invisible debt that's like out in the physical world that eventually someone's <laughs> going to have to pay. But, yes, yeah. that money, that that maintenance spending is is what everything is rotating around. Someone's got to come up with that money, basically. Mm -hmm. Michael Wara, you know, as we talk about this kind of big structural challenges that PG&E faces, um, they also have to shift the energy supply away from carbon-based sources and to, uh, to renewables. Uh, or or saving energy efficiency, other other ways of uh, of decarbonizing. How do you see those two challenges intersecting? Well, I think if we can't find affordable ways to manage the safety issues, it makes the energy transition work harder um, and 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 much harder to afford because part of the the build that PG&E does need to do, and and utilities like it that are you know in states where the energy transition is a real priority, is they need to build um, much more um, poles and wires, electric high voltage transmission, the distribution lines that are kind of the last mile of delivering electricity to homes. All of that needs to be upgraded um, in order to support electric vehicles and also to deliver energy from where renewable sources of power are to cities, as opposed to where we built fossil fired power plants in the last century. And so there are actually significant investment demands uh, related to the energy transition and affording them in combination with all of the maintenance that uh, Dave was just referring to is, is a huge challenge for, for PG&E and for other Western utilities that are confronting the wildfire problem as well. Let's say, Michael Wara, you need to rank PG&E relative to other utilities. Are they just putting in a, you know, in, in terms of the, the upgrading of infrastructure, uh, safety issues, renewables, like not, not their, our, their environmental situation, which, of course, like PG&E has contributed to global warming like everybody else, but, but their, their actual infrastructure and spending on it. Are, are, is PG&E like a bottom-ranked performer turning in a mid-link performance? Like what would you say? Well, you know, there are lots of different ways to to rank performance is is the first thing I'd say. And and you know, I think anyone looking at the situation in California over the last five years or so, or maybe longer than that, seven years, ten years, would say that PG&E has a really troubling safety record. There's just no other way to slice it. 
Um, and they, you know, the San Bruno gas explosion was the first kind of big red flag. Um, and that was followed by really a series, not, not just 27 and 2018, but a whole series starting in 2015 of truly catastrophic wildfires that were caused by PG&E's infrastructure and that devastated communities. So, you know, on safety, um, PG&E has not done well over the last decade. They are, I really, I do believe working very hard to improve that record, if only because, and I don't think this is just, this is, this is not the primary reason, but I think it's, it's reasonable to look at their incentives and, you know, they have very strong financial incentives to avoid starting wildfires because of the legal regime in California. But I think more than that, you know, I, I know people who work for PG&E and, and I think personally, they are really affected by the performance of the company's infrastructure over the last five years and, and don't want to be starting fires and, and harming the communities that they serve. And so, you know, it's, it's a both and. Um, but as Dave pointed out, you know, the infrastructure is was a, a marvel of the early 20th century in some places uh, and is showing its age in many. And so they're, you know, spending money on infrastructure in a pretty unprecedented way where, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's more um, money being spent in the PG&E system to harden it to wildfire, especially than almost anywhere else in the country. Um, and it's a real strain on the company's ability to raise money and spend it. It's also a strain, of course, on ratepayers that ultimately foot the bill. We're talking about the status and future of PG, PG&E with Michael Wara, a lawyer and scholar focused on climate and energy policy at Stanford University, directs the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute for the Environment. Dave Roberts, author and host of Volts, a newsletter and podcast about clean energy and politics. And Lily Jamali, senior reporter with Marketplace, been covering PG&E for a long time as well. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the status and future of PG&E with Lily Jamali, senior reporter at Marketplace, Dave Roberts, author and host of Volt's newsletter and podcast about clean energy and politics, and Stanford's Woods Institute for the Environment's Michael Wara, a lawyer and scholar focused on climate and energy policy. We want to take some of your calls about PG&E. Obviously, we're all relying on them. What are your questions about the future of our utility here, PG&E. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. 
Perhaps you've tried to get off the grid and be less reliant on PG&E. How has that gone? The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. If you are interested in these events, Lynn Jamali and Michael Warb, we will be participating in a conference tomorrow hosted by Stanford, examining corporations and climate risk in the real world. The case of PG&E, it's tomorrow 3.30 to 6.45, and you can zoom in, which is, uh, if you if you really want to know, that's probably going to be uh, a deep dive for you. Um, Lily, we need to talk a little bit, I think, about how PG&E can be and has been held accountable for its uh, negligence and dangerous behavior in the past. Um, how is that playing into sort of the, the current challenges? Well, I think, you know, that's really the theme of this conference. Yes, it's about PG&E, but it's also about corporate accountability in general, you know, what role do corporations play in our society? What role should they play? Um, And I have to say, you know, I went to business school, I went to NYU and got a great education there that helped me a lot, actually, when I was covering the bankruptcy. But what I found was that, you know, the the discussion around um, the the role that corporations play in our lives is not really, you know, something that's discussed a whole lot. And I really commend Stanford for spearheading this conversation and actually holding it at their business school so that the next generation of business leaders can, you know, kind of keep this more at the forefront of their minds. You know, in terms of accountability for PG&E, the big case that um, some people might remember is the prosecution uh, stemming from the 2018 campfire. Um Prosecuting the company fell to the Butte County District Attorney's Office. So, you know, think about um, how many lawyers they probably had and how many lawyers PG&E had in that case. Um, And, you know, despite the odds, uh, the Butte County District Attorney, Mike Ramsey, put together a a really solid case and was able to secure uh, about 85 guilty pleas from PG&E. Uh, back in 2020. Uh, So 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter and the count of causing the fire. Um, You know, I think the, the, the thing that's disconcerting about the outcome of that case is the fact that it was a $4 million fine, ultimately, that PG&E paid. You know, no one went to jail. Um, And, you know, when the case was over, the district attorney said, you know, you're on notice now, right? Telling PG&E, um, we have the receipts and you, there's no excuse anymore for next time uh, to say, uh, you know, we didn't understand, you know, we didn't know how, how badly neglected the system was. So, you know, the, the issue now is that still, you know, you do see these local prosecutors um, in the difficult position of having to to prosecute a very large, uh, very lawyered up company. And so, um, you know, going after a company like that on a criminal uh, liability case, you're not going to get much in the way of a fine. Um, and so I think that does, you know, probably plant the seed for maybe a civil case is the better way to go, because at least we'll get, you know, more money out of the case, um, because otherwise, you know, the the fines are really limited when you approach this from a criminal from the criminal side. Dave Roberts, when I hear Lily talk about the role of corporate social responsibility or just like that, the corporations could um, figure this out on their own, I just keep seeing those incentives that you have discussed already and it feels like until those incentives change like how much can sort of the cultural change within a company actually do well 
you know, it's interesting. I recently read uh, journalist Catherine Blunt's book about uh, PG&E, which is fascinating, goes through the history. And what you see in the last, you know, 60 years of history of the utility is, you know, they, they neglect maintenance costs. They build up and build up. There's a disaster. There's some sort of reckoning, some sort of court case. You know, you get a bunch of executives apologizing. You get a bunch of new apologizing. You get a bunch of new executives who pledge, you know, we're going to get on that maintenance. And they do. They start a big new program but over time you know over time these incentives kind of reassert themselves because the amount that needs to be spent on maintenance is truly gargantuan and it is not really clear that an investor-owned utility is going to be able to make profits and pay out these dividends to shareholders while it is spending as much money as needs to be spent so you're right like the basic incentive structure is wrong and there's only you know sort of the goodwill of a new round of executives is is of limited let's say limited value uh until those incentives change in my opinion Let's bring in a caller. We've got uh, Loretta Lynch, who uh, was the former head of the California Public Utilities Commission. Hi, Loretta Lynch. Hi. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for calling. Sure. I just wanted to agree with Robert wholeheartedly and correct a misimpression from Mr. Wara. PG&E receives extraordinary amounts of money to maintain their system through their general rate case every three years. The problem is not all the customer money that PG&E has received for maintenance and safety over the past 20 years. The problem is that PG&E corporate officials diverted that money. That means they failed to spend it on the problems that it was provided for. And the federal judge that was overseeing their criminal probation confirmed that. And then PG&E has the audacity to come back to their customers and ask for more. And it's not the PG&E employees that are at fault here. It's the PG&E's corporate management. They ignore safety and maintenance for short-term profits today, and we know that because of these tragic cases and wildfires that keep happening. Until the PUC and our elected officials hold PG&E to account, their quest for profits over safety and reliability will never stop, as Catherine's book shows. Hey, um, Loretta, I have sort of a question on this, which is, uh, and then Michael, Warr, you're you're coming in next. Um, what is PG&E supposed to like? That money's gone out the door, right? That they received in the past. So, what is PG&E supposed to do to fix the these problems now? Aside from go back to ratepayers. Well, the excess profits that the shareholders enjoyed over the past several years should be given back. Number one, PG&E should stop dividends now, just like uh, Judge Alsup. Uh, asked for but never happened. Number two, PG&E should stop using um, ratepayer money for political contributions, and that money should go back to the ratepayers. Number three, PG&E was just given hundreds of millions of dollars of excess profits in their cost of capital case. They came back to the PUC and said, hey, we suffered during the pandemic, so we should get higher profits. And guess what? The PUC just last month said, sure, we'll give you higher profits. And that case should be overturned. That would be hundreds of millions of dollars of pure profit that comes back to the ratepayers because we are already way overburdened. Or that money should be spent on maintenance and not put in shareholders' pockets. Loretta Lynch, uh, former head of the California Public Utilities Commission, thanks uh, so much for your for your call, Michael. War, I want to give you a chance to uh, to respond to uh, to the points that uh, Loretta brought up. Yeah, well, I'd say a couple things. Um, you know, I don't disagree with uh, uh, Loretta that that 
there's been a lot of bad behavior on, on, and, and, and I think there's room to share blame, um, both, uh, with, you know, decisions that were made, um, by the PUC, the economic regulator, um, you know, in terms of its governance of PG&E over multiple decades, I think it's also totally reasonable. And I think, uh, uh, Catherine Blunt's book does a great job of describing, the kind of management decision-making that was made, particularly in the 2000s after the first bankruptcy, that was really aimed at um, you know, increasing dividends, increasing the share price, and um, you know, doing exactly what uh, Dave Roberts suggested, minimizing the parts of the utility spending where the shareholders don't make money. Um, and, and that's well-documented, and I, I certainly would not dispute that. <laughs> Um, I do think we need to think about where we are now and how we manage the situation we're in now. And there, I think it's much less clear um, you know, what the appropriate thing to do is. PG&E did recently restore dividends to its shareholders. And I, and I think it is totally reasonable to question whether that's an appropriate thing to do. Um, we know, however, that the company needs to raise large amounts of money. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that the way that utilities raise money to invest in new capital projects, you know, a lot of wildfire safety, a lot of clean energy investment is by selling shares and selling bonds in a sort of a 50-50 split. And so if the shares aren't worth anything because the company doesn't pay a dividend, which is the expectation of utility investors, then it's very hard to raise money to do the things that we urgently need PG&E to do. Yeah. The alternative, I suppose, is you know to to municipalize the company, right? To, to have the government take it over, and you know that was considered during the bankruptcy by the state, and a decision was made not to pursue that path. Um, I, I think I think you know one, one can sort of Monday morning quarterback that decision, but it's been made. It's in the rear view, and I think it's really important right now that we think proactively and in a forward-looking way about how to manage this company effectively so that it delivers safe, affordable, clean power. Yeah. We've got, uh, Lily, I wanted to ask you something. We've got one of our listeners, Jennifer, uh, writes in to say, I work with PG&E as a contract biologist. Whatever incentives PG&E has to prevent wildfires are not enough to keep the tree work going. The lines are overgrown, and this has been a direct cause of wildfires. As soon as we are not looking, PG&E stops doing the safety work. A quiet fire season has allowed them to think they don't need to spend the money. So, Lily, that's a, that's a report from the field, just, you know, single contract biologists out there. How do you, as a journalist, how can you track how, how intense this tree maintenance effort, which we know is sort of really directly linked to, to wildfires, how do we measure that, their progress on that? That's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer for you on that. Um, I can tell you that, you know, the Butte County District Attorney, um, their office did some really interesting work um, just using, a, I think it was like a Walmart purchase digital camera kind of thing to do their own inspections along some of the lines uh, that uh, were either along or very close to the line, the Caribou Palermo line in Butte County, which sparked the campfire. And they were able to, using, you know, this pretty low-end technology, uh, identify vulnerable, uh, you know, parts of the system and places where there was, you know, 
visible erosion. It was really interesting because um, the reporters over at ABC 10 in Sacramento, Brandon Riddiman, who's a tremendous investigative reporter there, um, you know, petitioned to get the grand jury testimony from the Butte County, um, the grand jury that ultimately was able to, you know, move forward with these charges against the company and the campfire. And, you know, what you see there is... um, the Butte County District Attorney doing the work and, you know, still some resistance from the inspectors at PG&E to even testify, to even, you know, say what they knew. Um, you see them taking the fifth, uh, plead, you know, invoking the Fifth Amendment so they wouldn't have to un- answer questions until they were guaranteed in some cases immunity. Um, and so, you know, I think the point there is just it's pretty simple. This stuff is um, it, it's not that hard. Uh, if you know if you're if you're doing it the right way or if you're trying hard enough and I think one of the issues is is that you know when you have a problem you have to do something about it so th- I think there are some incentives in place that actually you know um, might prompt a company like PG&E to look the other way or to not mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. these intense inspections mm-hmm. in the first place because then they yeah. have to do something about it Dave Roberts you know I wanted to ask you about we have a, a listener who's written in to say, David writes, um, wouldn't it make sense to separate ownership and management of the grid from power production, either a state agency or a separate nonprofit to manage the grid, then allow additional competition for, for power providers? And of course, different states have different kind of arrangements of, of some of these things. But I think the the question for me that, that comes out of that, too, is just what is both the modern grid how do we do grid modernization on a technological basis? And is it does that actually require some different uh, state structure or governance structure like this uh, listener was suggesting? Yeah, that's a really good and really complicated question. I mean, a lot of people, you know, as Michael referred to, a lot of people, you know, are pushing for municipalization, which is just making the utility public. Uh, but I just, you know, when people say that about pg and I just, I just come in and say, that's not going to make the giant pot of money that needs to be spent go away. It's just going to mean it, it more directly falls on the heads of ratepayers, right? Like, it's so, so municipalization can sound good until suddenly you have a public agency that's saying, we need to raise your rates for, you know, an extended period of time to find the money to do this. So, so I think the kind of reforms that are needed are, 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 are somewhat you know finer grained than that but you need to give the incentive you need to give the utility a way to make money by doing the things you want it to do basically if you're going to have an investor-owned utility that's the that's the long and short of it so you need to incentivize maintenance somehow and you know there's a there's a real um you can you can make money as an investor-owned utility by building new stuff, but there's a lot of things that can improve existing infrastructure that you can't get a rate of return on, and that needs to change too. So, for instance, monitoring all those lines that are mm-hmm. going over the California mountains and through the California forests, it's very difficult to get people out there to to put eyeballs on really tens of thousands of miles of lines. But, you know, they make drones now. There are electronic devices you can attach to lines that will notify you if there's a short or a fault. There are, um, you know, there are ways for to, to attach communication devices to lines so that they can coordinate power better and, and increase their capacity and decrease the need for new lines. There's lots and lots of, of modernization work that can be done, but you've got to find an incentive structure that, you know, like moral persuasion can only can only do so much or the threat of 
you know, the threat of legal fines really can only do so much in the long term. You need an incentive structure so the utility can, you, you know, has its own reasons, its own internal reasons for pursuing the things you want it to do. Yeah. Let's squeeze in a call before the break. Uh, Kristen, Kirsten in Berkeley. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I'm a big fan of Volts, and I really appreciate this conversation. Um, right to your point, David, about um, you know changing the incentive structure, I'm curious. I don't think anybody has spoken yet about the role of corporate insurance for PG&E and whether there's any potential leverage there, whether it's just not you know, capable of the type of scale of incentive that would be required. Um, Do they have leverage that they could be using there? It's great. Great question. Thank you, Kirsten in Berkeley. Michael War, maybe start start your answer here. Uh, Quick, quick one here before the break. Sure. Uh, PG&E has a lot of trouble getting any insurance at this point, as as do essentially all of the California electric utilities. Part of allowing PG&E to emerge from bankruptcy was basically setting up a state-backed insurance claims fund called the Wildfire Fund that helps all of the IOUs in the state operate because they can't buy nearly enough insurance um, to actually cover their risks due to wildfire. Hmm. The, uh, you know, and I, I think it's, you know, one, one of the reinsurers that I've spoken to about this issue, you know, likes to say that you know, insurance for utilities in California and in general, wildfire reinsurance in California costs about a dollar plus uh, for a dollar of coverage, plus whatever the lawyers cost to write the contracts. So it's just expensive and unavailable um, at the at the level that's needed to really insure California at this point. Hmm. Kind of scary. We're talking about the status and future of PG&E with Mike Wara, lawyer and scholar focused on climate and energy policy at Stanford. Dave Roberts, author and host of Volts, a newsletter and podcast about clean energy and politics. Also reported on energy and climate for Grist and Vox for years and years before striking out. And Lily Jamali, senior reporter with Marketplace and longtime uh, reporter on PG&E. We'll be taking a lot more of your questions about the future of PG&E after the break. The number's 866-733-6786. And if you can't get through there, there's always Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and email. Uh, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the status and future of PG&E with Lily Jamali, senior reporter with Marketplace. Dave Roberts, author and host of Volt's newsletter and podcast about clean energy and politics. And Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Let's get to some more calls. I think people are going to want to talk about some solar. Uh, Steve in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I kind of wanted to jump on the, um, you know, converting PG&E to a public utility bandwagon. And, you know, I, I just feel like distributed power, putting solar panels on roofs and relying on the citizenry to generate power has kind of hit a stall. And that's because PG&E doesn't make money off of it. If you make it a public utility and you provide the incentives to the people to take charge of their own energy creation and energy savings, I think that's going to go a really long way. And it's just something that, that I don't think was pursued enough. I'd like, mm-hmm. to, I'd like to see if there's mm-hmm. any comments regarding Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Steve. Uh, you know, Dave Roberts, I feel like this is in part a response to, to you. Um, could we get, let's say it doesn't fix the maintenance issue necessarily, right, because we still have this big bolus of money that needs to, need to be broken down, but would it help in the deployment of renewables because the case could be made differently if it was a public utility? Uh, this is a great, a great question. A great, um, I, I appreciate Steve bringing this up. This is really important. So two things to say. One is, yes, more distributed solar energy generated on site by consumers will help not only in decarbonizing the grid, but in uh, in creating more resilience to wildfires. If you can put local communities, if they have solar power and they have batteries for some power backup and they have a mini grid that can sort of temporarily cut off from the larger grid, you can uh, prevent blackouts. So even if the larger grid goes down, that little island can stay powered, which is, of course, as we know, huge for people with medical devices, people with mobility challenges, all these things. These power outages are a big deal. So um, distributed energy is a huge piece of resilience for California in the face of wildfires. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it is true that a big investor-owned utility traditionally structured like PG&E has very little incentive to to encourage distributed energy because, as Steve says, they don't make money off it. As a matter of fact, the more distributed energy you build, the less new big grid infrastructure you need, so the less money PG&E makes. So, in a sense, all big investor-owned utilities are structurally opposed to distributed energy, and that's a huge problem. The question is whether municipalization is the best solution to that. And I think I would just say that whether the utility is public or private is somewhat orthogonal to that mm-hmm. problem. You need the incent- you need to create an incentive structure so that the utility wants to spread distributed energy and 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 can can make money off it somehow. And there are reforms available that do that that don't really have to do with the public versus private distinction you know you can you can do um performance-based rates and there's all kind of sort of technical fixes that can try to incentivize the utility to want to help communities do this because but you don't I, think I, exposing I, the utility to sort of essentially like democratic governance or more democratic governance would lead you know uh, generally speaking to doing the things that we're talking about here more I, more I, often i i mean 
probably in California, yes, because of the California citizenry. But I would just, you know, I always just warn people like there are there are municipal utilities out there that are really bad actors that are really coal heavy that are really opposed to renewable energy. Like municipalization is not a guarantee of any particular reform. So even if the utility became a public utility, the same reforms would be needed, right? The same, you'd still have to do the same kinds of things. Lily, I wanted to uh, check in with you quickly about the city of Fresno, which has been making some noise about municipalization, yeah? Yeah, the city of Fresno, the mayor there, Jerry Dyer, um, has been pushing for this or at least making a lot of noise about it lately. He wants to hire a consultant to look at whether it's feasible to have uh, the city provide power to residents, uh, going to get pg e out of the equation there. And I think a lot of that stems with frustration about how long it's taking for projects, including government projects, but also housing developments, to actually get hooked up to the grid. Um, and I know that there was a meeting about this um, in Sacramento not long ago. So, you know, it's entirely possible that if PG&E addresses that particular issue, this will all go away. But, you know, the municipalization thing is always, um, you know, sort of is always sort of in the background. Right. And in San Francisco, even though they failed to make that happen in 2019, um, when, you know, the bankruptcy presented ostensibly an opportunity for them to to have the leverage needed to make to make it happen, um, they haven't given up completely. And the PUC in San Francisco, they have their own uh, public mm-hmm. utility commission there. They have petitioned the state this year to try to come up with a valuation for how much PG&E's local equipment is worth. But, you know, when you think about it, if you take these large cities, these densely populated places out of, you know, PG&E's portfolio, that, you know, pg is going to fight tooth and nail for that. And we saw this way, way back in, you know, the 1920s, Sacramento uh, started to uh, started the process of municipalizing. It took them 23 years mm-hmm. to get it done. Wow. Uh, let's bring in uh, some more callers. Donna in Napa. Welcome. Thank you. I lived uh, about a mile from where the 2020 glass fire was held back, and so I observed a lot of crews coming from far away places like Louisiana. I don't know where they were, you know, a lot of them from far away. Mm-hmm. So uh, being a frugal homemaker, I'm looking at these crews who have too many men on a job on our street, and I've done a lot of work with tree crews, and I think it could have been done with fewer men at less expense. I don't know if anybody's keeping track of the budget for this and what it costs to bring those guys in, put them in a hotel, feed them. I don't know if anybody's looking at the cost of all this. And then the other thing is, a couple years ago, just on the street next to us at noontime, we heard this big explosion, Transformer, Transformer blew up, Luckily, there was a tree crew right there. They put it out before the fire department could get Mm. there. That's a forested area with lots of homes. If that had happened at night, we would have had a major fire on our hands. I don't know why they can't replace all the transformers for less than it would take to pay for a major fire. This is an issue that was actually raised on their recent earnings call. Um, and, you know, it's definitely on the radar 
uh, without a doubt. There's this issue that a lot of people in communities like yours near where the glass fire took place uh, and really anywhere that has, you know, fire prone um, is is in a fire prone community. This idea of repeat visits where you have the same, you know, inspectors coming by again and again. Um, why does that happen? And this is something that PG&E addressed. Uh, they're trying to they're trying to deal with it and trying to bring, you know, those repeat visits to to make sure that doesn't happen as much. Yeah. I uh, want to get to, uh, thank you so much for that, Donna Napa. Um, I wanted to get to Dan in Oakland. Welcome, Dan. Hi, how are you? Um, hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. Got a question. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so I got a question. Um, I, mean, I grew up in Palo Alto, and they had um, undergrounded the utilities, I think, for earthquake purposes back then in the 70s. It's, a, it's own municipal mm-hmm. um they do. They could afford it anyway. And then so I'm wondering what this talk of uh, and it was a small city and they did a good job. They did a long time ago. But um, I see the CEO of PG&E on the phone uh, or on the TV talking about, uh, you know, undergrounding all these lines. Why isn't that infrastructure and why isn't they couldn't be incentivized to get a good return on the undergrounding of lines as infrastructure and that incentivizing there? And then you have much better protection against earthquakes and forest fires from um, climate change. Yeah, Dan, thank, yeah. thanks so much for that. You know, uh, let me check in with you mm-hmm. on this. I mean, I think I was looking at these numbers that they were doing about, you know, they promised 10,000, or at least would like to, <laughs> hypothetically, they'd like to put 10,000 miles of, of line underground. We're doing about 30 miles a year, and now maybe did 50 last year, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about how this process is going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just a little bit of context, the announcement about undergrounding, um, they had already started doing some undergrounding in Paradise specifically. But in terms of this grand scale, 10,000 miles of line announcement that came out last year. And this was when the Dixie fire had started at this point uh, in July 2021. It was clear PG&E's equipment probably had played a role. And so they called together this this uh, press conference. I think I got 45 minutes notice that it was happening. And, um, you know, Patty Poppy, the at that time, new CEO, um, gets up there and says, we're going to be undergrounding, you know, what's equivalent to about an eighth of their entire system, I believe. Um, and the cost was, you know, it, it, talk about sticker shock, you know, something like $25 billion. If you look at PG&E's balance sheet, that's like half of their assets, right? Their asset value as a company. Um, so, you know, that's the context. And then just, you know, we here we are a year plus later, and we still don't really have a good sense of what the financials are on that. And we're not going to get um, a thorough financial analysis probably until next mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to think, you know, from a PR perspective, I think that was a, a pretty brilliant stroke to sort of um, put the story about PG&E's role in the Dixie Fire on the back burner for a time and say, hey, you know, we're doing something and we're doing something mm-hmm. big. We're going big. Um, but I do think it's, uh, you know, concerning that the the hard financials, mm-hmm. um, that analysis uh, is not coming out for what will probably end up being about two years after the initial announcement was made. Yeah. I also remember looking at... Um different research on the cost per mile and it's actually kind of the scariest sort of chart yeah. where like the cost per mile wildly varies in all these different ways which makes actually doing projections on how much it will cost right. like extremely difficult it's two to four million dollars per mile and i think the the plan is if you're doing this at this kind of scale that you can get it closer to the two million than the four million 
but it's a lot of money. And I think the the concern is that, you know, there's there's got to be some other projects, smaller scale projects, things like microgrids and other pilots that they could be doing um, that, you know, are more cost efficient yeah. than this. Uh, Michael Wara, uh, going to throw uh, two two comment listener comments to you. Uh, Pauline writes, "Thank you for this conversation, especially about how to change the incentive structure. Which lawmakers are working on this? Who's blocking it? It feels like such an obvious change that needs to happen." Another listener writes, "Alexis, could you ask your guests how they would propose to solve that structural problem caused by PG&E's broken incentive structure that denies profits on maintenance outlays?" Uh, Michael Wara. Well, I'd say. You know, if I had to say which legislators are working on this, I think the legislature is pretty weary, particularly the Southern California legislators, of having to deal with the problem of PG&E. Um, mm-hmm. There are certainly a large number of legislators that are focused on the wildfire problem writ large for California. And obviously, like last year, you know, we had the Dixie fire that was PG&E caused. We also had the Calder fire that was not caused by PG&E, and it was very destructive in Grizzly Flats and in particular and so there's a bunch of folks uh, in Sacramento that are really focused on how to how to manage the broader wildfire problem um, much better for California. Um, I would say right now there's not a lot of major legislation focused on changing incentives for PG&E. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just would just follow up on the question about undergrounding to say. I think what we're seeing from the company is in part driven by the financial incentives created by the, you know, the, the, the incentives that, that uh, Dave Roberts described. Undergrounding is a capital investment. It's a very expensive capital investment. And that may be, so I'm not, not saying it is, but it may be part of the reason that PG&E's board is very supportive of it. I think we really do need to ask hard questions about the the relative you know sort of incremental value of undergrounding versus other strategies and certainly the various regulators in California are trying to ask those questions um, but it's it's uh, pretty hard to figure out and 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 I would agree that we don't have enough information at this point to 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 fully understand what the cost will actually be and and those costs include undergrounding, of course, mm-hmm. but they also include all the maintenance and we have to do while we're doing the undergrounding. We mm-hmm. can't stop on the tree trimming and the line maintenance and the line upgrades over this multi, you know, at least a decade process, but I think probably longer at which it, during which we'll be doing digging trenches and putting lines in trenches. Um, yeah. And so you, it's a very expensive undertaking. Dave Roberts, you know, you, Cover you know and have have written about and learned about utilities across the country. What places have successfully changed this kind of incentive structure that is uh, obviously clearly like this kind of underlying structural problem to so many of the other things that we're talking about today? Yeah, it's 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 complicated because it's you know super complicated, and you have to coordinate a utility and a public utility commission and a legislature and get ratepayers on board and. Um, so it's just bits and pieces scattered about like massachusetts has done some good stuff california itself has done some good stuff we've done some good stuff up in washington but the one thing that i would just throw out there is right now 
they get paid based on building, right? So that's almost the only incentive. And and, and as Michael sort of uh, delicately is trying to say here, that might have a lot to do with the fact that they've stumbled on undergrounding as a situation as a solution, right? Because it is the most capital intensive <laughs> solution, and it's not even really a total solution. You can bury distribution lines near people's houses, but these giant long distance power lines that are going off through the forest, nobody's even talking about burying those. I mean, that would be that would be uh, out of this world. So the main thing to me is <clears throat> to change what utilities make money on. And, the, and there's something called performance-based incentives, which just says to a utility, your returns are now not only tied to your spending, but tied to some performance metrics. So how, you know, how much of the grid have you decarbonized or resilience or how many customers now have battery and and solar systems you can you know pick and choose what sort of incentives you want to um uh or, or or what sort of performance characteristics you want to incentivize but that's the way to do it is so the utility says oh i can you know what we want pg and e thinking is oh i can make we can make money for our investors by going out and helping customers build microgrids and increasing their resilience that's sort of the in-state you're after. So performance-based incentives are just, you know, if people could take away sort of one phrase or one reform from this conversation, that's what I would throw out there. Yeah. Um, Jim writes and say, PG&E's reports to investors indicate they're targeting 8 to 10% annual growth. Where is this advertised rate-based growth going to come from? We already have some of the most expensive energy in the country. How can those growth rates be sustained? Communities served by publicly slash municipal-owned utilities generally pay less for their energy. If rate-based growth is the only way to attract private investment, isn't that evidence? The regulated investor-owned utilities model is flawed and doomed to fail. Shouldn't the energy market pivot from investor-owned to publicly owned. Clearly a lot of support for that among the listeners today, <laughs> uh, given what we've been hearing. Uh, just wanted to note if these, uh, if this was interesting to you, there is a conference going on. Michael Wara, Lily Jamali uh, are going to be talking tomorrow at Stanford in the afternoon. We've been talking about the status and future of PG&E with Lily Jamali, senior reporter with Marketplace. And Erstwhile, KQED, amazing reporter. Thank you for joining us, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. Also joined by Dave Roberts, author and host of Volts, a newsletter and podcast about clean energy and politics. Nice to talk with you, Dave, as always. Thanks, Alexis. And Michael Wara, a lawyer and scholar focused on climate and energy policy at Stanford University, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute for the Environment there. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. And I just say you can listen to the conference online if you're interested at cassie.stanford.edu. All are welcome. Great. Thanks so much. And thanks to the callers and listeners today. You, We couldn't get to you all. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. 
And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.